first Market Monday in January the 8th. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, Carter Braxtonworth will be joining us shortly. Market Call, 1 p.m. on the East Coast. Huge sports event tonight. No, not the national championship game. The fact that the Rangers of New York will be playing the Canucks of Vancouver at Madison Square Garden. This harkens back to the Stanley Cup Finals of 1994. And I will tell you that both teams are seemingly poised for a similar outcome this year. JT Miller really acquitting himself well in Vancouver, as you know. Uh, How are you, Dan? By the way, one of these Hughes kids. I mean, these three Hughes brothers are out of control, by the way. Like the the Hanson brothers. I mean, Guy, here's the thing. I think what you wanted to get at with that 1994 outcome was – the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup. Well, I mean, that's really what you're talking about here. So this is the 30-year anniversary. We are on 30-year watch here, Guy. I know it's way too early for you to start thinking about that on January 8th. But here's another thing. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a podcast where, um, you know, like, you know, we were talking about rotations. We were talking about, like, the different things going on in the markets, how, like, investors were, like, positioning for 2024. And it was on a specific day where they just came – for the like the biggest names, you know, the Mag Seven, they were ripping them, and and we called it uh, broke back market. Like they, mm. they just can't quit, you know, those names. You know what I mean? And look at today; it's really interesting because, um, you know, last week we had some rotations, we had some people taking some profits in these like massive names that had huge outsized gains. I mean, you think about Apple was the worst performing of the Mag Seven last year, and it was up fifty percent and gained yeah. a trillion dollars in market cap. Meta was up. 200%. NVIDIA was up 230%. Um, you know, I mean, it was it's staggering, right? Amazon. But like, look at this. So last week, if you said, okay, well, we're going to see some things, money move over here and there and this and that. And I think you and I have both been in the camp. That's all fine and good. Okay. Like you can do that. Have, have, have at it. Okay. But to really get this market going again, you just need those names. There's no yes. other way about it. And that's the point we made for a while. I mean, you can have you can have other stocks and other sectors do well, but in order for the just mathematically for the broader market to continue this rise or get back on the, the horse, I guess, after last yeah. week, you need these stocks to participate. And I'm going to tell the audience, I hope everybody, if not most of the people are sitting down because I want to take a look at the rundown <laughs> here, Dan. And it starts with Dan's bullish trade. On NVIDIA. So to take a look at that, folks, because I know a lot of you folks are like, get out of here. Obviously, Carter's going to take a look at JP Morgan and the banks. And I think this is interesting. And it's something we talked about on our conference call just now. But American Express and Capital One saw downgrades today, Dan. And that's something we have talked about as well. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, in Amex, and we're going to hit the charts uh, later with Carter too, it went from a 52 week low almost to a new 52 week high in a straight line, way outperforming the S&P 500. You know, cap one, we talked about and some of its peers that spend a little time on the lower end of the credit spectrum. Remember last year, there was like increasing charge offs and, and, you know, the delinquencies and charge offs and reserves were going up in that space. So like, it's kind of an interesting one, two punch. So we'll, take a look at those um you know guy real quickly on the s&p here um carter was on late last week with us and we were talking about the s&p 500 but you know we were talking about how the most natural thing his charts were pointing to it would be a pullback towards that kind of breakout level maybe at some point over the next month or so we see a convergence of that rising 150 day moving average and where the s&p would find some support but i just give us a sense like you know a lot of folks like think that the idea of higher highs coming from lower lows is kind of a goofy sort of 
a thing. But I think Carter's expression was, you know, the whole idea of back and filling can be a healthy thing, especially after such a, a remarkable move in such a short period of time that felt parabolic. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, let's call it October 27th until recently, you see the move. I mean, your eyes can see the move on this chart. And yes, a healthy thing is back and filling. You can do a long-term chart of just about everything. And you see, you know, moves from lower left to the upper right. Typically, they're accompanied by some sort of back and fill along the way. I mean, Eli Lilly is a great example of that. But there are other stocks as well. The S&P is no different. So 4,600, yes, would make sense. That's the levels we saw back in the summer. I think it was July of last year. Um, we're right up against prior all-time highs, effectively, again. So this is a level where, theoretically, at least, we should find some resistance, and we did obviously last week. Now I don't know what to make of it. Now today's, you know, the beginning of the first full week of the year. Obviously, we're going to talk about interest rates, the moving yields. I think ten-year yields got up to, I want to say four hundred seven, four hundred eight, only then to completely reverse. And I think there's this knee-jerk reaction. I think it's that Pavlovian response to the broader market yields going lower today, basically the Nasdaq going higher, and the S and P following suit. So. There's a little of that going on. But to go back to that S&P chart, 4,600-ish makes a lot of sense. The question, of course, is, does it happen from current levels or do we do some sort of move higher and take out the prior high only then to see it back? I will say it's the former, I think, 4,600 before we get anywhere close to a new all-time high. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, just again, going back to last week, you had some pruning of positions. And then this week, they come right back for the semis, which is just pretty interesting to me. Um, let's look at that yield chart for one second. So, Guy, you just mentioned the kind of Pavlovian response that the equity market has towards lower yields. And it is interesting. Maybe they can pull up a one-day chart here or a two-day chart here. We were up above 4% not too long ago, and then we moved a bit lower. You see that gives an extra push to um, equities a little bit here. I mean, I think you, myself, and Carter, we talked a little bit last week how we thought we could see maybe you know a move higher in yields, which would correspond lower um, in the TLT. We detailed an options trade using that, looking out a couple months here, but you see that kind of selling off. So that relationship is something that I think we want to kind of keep a close eye on here. No, you have to keep. I mean, I think, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future, I think it's just that simple where, you know, the you, you can overlay an equity chart, an S&P chart with a bond chart. And depending on how you look at it, it's either lockstep or completely inverse. And both are the same thing, but in terms of yields or in terms of the TLT. And I think to a certain extent, that's what we're seeing here. I will say this. I have no idea why yields fell as dramatically as they did. Maybe something happened. As Dan will tell you, I actually was in jury duty earlier today. I was trying to pay attention. But you know, it's not like we haven't seen moves of that magnitude before. But I don't think anything fundamentally changed today in yeah. terms of the market other than that move in yields. Yeah, I, and I guess just to put a bow on this, I mean, like you're looking at crude oil down 4%. You're looking at the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index down a little bit. You're seeing yields down. All that's good for the perception of higher equities. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that, especially after you had a week like last week um, where, you know, the sentiment turned on a dime there. All right, Car uh, let, let's bring Carter in here because we've used his name on, on many occasions so far. That would be Carter Braxton. We're at the word charting. Carter, welcome. Man, Got a tie on. He's handsome. Look at that. Is that green? Is that like a forest green? I need a haircut like yours. Yeah, I took it down. Look at that. I, yeah. 
It's tight. It looks like getting ready for summer. Let's Carter, let's talk a little bit here um, before we even look at the chart. Um, you know, Guy, and, and again, you were paying attention in jury duty and you did get yourself acquitted, if you will. So you're here with us. So we appreciate that. Um, so you must have said some some funny things there to, to get out of the, uh, you, you know, your civic duty there. But Carter, you know, over the weekend, there was a whole host of, of kind of different headlines. You know, one was that, OK, you know, the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea who are disrupting you know, the flow of oil through there. Um, there might be some sort of deal. Maybe our three destroyers that we sent to the Red Sea um, was somewhat intimidating one way or another. And we were kind of shooting up some of their ships there. And then on the flip side of it, the Saudis are talking about lowering prices on crude, specifically crude that's headed towards, you know, Asia. Um, and we know that the Chinese have been buying lots of oil um, from the Russians, but the Red Sea is obviously um, a big region there. So like some kind of competing headlines here. So the fact we have shipping rates down, supposedly. We talked about this guy a little bit with Danny Moses on Friday's um, On the Tape podcast. You know, we're talking about like what that could mean for shipping rates. Is that inflationary? Well, you saw Marist was down like 8%, like mm -hmm. just on the headline of that sort of thing. And then you see crude down 4%. Massive move, Carter. Um, you know, you were kind of poo-pooing any sort of solidifying in the price of crude last week. This sort of price action, what does this speak to you about as it relates to crude? Well, you know, it just had a big ricochet off the low, and uh, the ricochet is faltering sort of at trend. Um, ultimately, look, I'm in the lower, you know, lower rates, lower oil, lower dollar, lower stock market uh, camp, and three of those four have cooperated. Uh, the issue is, I guess, is there a big play in oil? Because, you, you know, dropping $5 to 65 that, that's nothing, right? Um, or we just stay 70, 75, 65, 70. Can we, and that's always, can we find an opportunity? Is it oil or is it corn? Or is it Peloton shares or JP Morgan? We find an opportunity where we really have a, you know, a 30, 50% kind of thing. I don't suppose oil is that, right? My hunch is that it, it, it works lower, um, but I'm not in the camp in, you know, 30s and 40s. I, I don't think anyone can come to a judgment like that. Uh, the only time you hear people saying that is when they're extrapolating what is going on. So just as when we were here back in the summer and rates were at three, two, three, five, the consensus was recession, hard landing. All of a sudden, of course, rates jumped to 5%, oil jumps to 95 and consensus is higher for longer and oil is going to go to 110. Now, all of a sudden, you get the, now they're going to cut 95 times. Rates are going to go lower. It, it, it's just recency. Recency is a powerful phenomenon. People see what is currently going on and extrapolate more of the same. My own hunch is oil is sort of a pair of twos. Guy, thoughts really quickly on the Biden administration and any inclination to kind of refill that strategic petroleum reserve at these levels? Because there was an article in Barron's, and Liz and I talked about it a little bit this morning um, on the pod, talking about how in the start of 2022, they were selling 20 million um, barrels a month, and now they seem to be buying only 3 million mm -hmm. back. Is that creating a bit of a floor for crude here? One of the reasons why we didn't go back and retest those spring and summer lows so far. It's a great question, and I've done some reading on it as well. And there's a school of thought that now that we're, you know, I don't want to say energy independent because I don't like the term necessarily. But what I will tell you is, you know, we're producing over 13 million barrels of oil a day, which is a record for the United States. So there are people out there that believe, and again, I don't know enough about it to answer that intelligently, but believe that because of our production, uh, the SPR is not as big a risk as it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So for example, if we had depleted it to this extent 
uh, 10 or 15 years ago, we'd be in much worse shape than we currently are now vis-a-vis the production that we're seeing. So I think to a certain extent, that seemingly has mitigated, I guess, some of the concerns around crude. And one of the reasons maybe crude isn't significantly higher. But to specifically answer your question, they will refill it over a period of time. Theoretically, that should provide a speed bump on the way down. But clearly, it doesn't want to seem to stop the trajectory lower that's been in place since the fall of last year. Yeah. And, and just looking at that downtrend line, it just seems like a pretty safe bet to kind of try to sell crude when it hits that point and, and look to buy it someplace back in the in the you know mid to high 60s or so. So it'll be interesting to see if those cuts are put into place um, and, and what happens here. And it could correspond. We've been talking about China for a while. I mean, the China economic data looks really weak. So maybe it is a demand story. If you have low demand, you cut prices, right, to increase demand. So we'll see um, about that. All right, Carter, we say this all the time, that your ears must be ringing. We talk about you, whether it's on Market Call or Fast Money or whatever it is, um, when you're not around, we're talking about you. Um, Friday afternoon, um, you and I, for 10 years, did Options Action, 5.30 to 6 o'clock together um, on CNBC's Fast Money. I was on the on Fast Money um last Friday and we have a little clip. So I just want, I, I, in case you missed it, um, you got invoked a little bit and I was talking oh, about good. video. Okay. <laughs> and Carter Braxton Worth got me thinking about this yesterday because I asked him about this. And you know, if you just look at the technical setup right here, the fact that it's been consolidating, it's underperformed the S&P 500 pretty massively and much of the NASDAQ over the last few months, look at the RSI. The stock is actually corrected without correcting relative to the market here. And this looks kind of interesting to me because now it's butting up against those prior all-time highs after this long consolidation. It's outperforming this week. We just spent some time talking about how some of these mega caps are doing. And what I find really interesting is that, yes, it's grown into its valuation right now, but I don't want to own this thing. I think it sets up as a good trade using options. I want to look out to February expiration. I want to look at the 500 call in February. Cost you $16. Stock trading around $490 right now. That's 3% of the stock price. It breaks even up 5%. This stock moves on average 3% a day or so, and I have more than a month for this to play out. Yeah, so so one of the things, Carter, it was interesting on Thursday's market call when Guy, you and myself were talking about some of these names that were grinding, but you know, I was looking at the relative strength index in that NVIDIA, and it was right at the midpoint of the range, right? Despite the fact the stock was right back near its prior mm-hmm. highs, right? But it hadn't made a new high and hadn't really made any progress. I think this was kind of your point in a way. So through time, I think you said it had corrected. And then I was looking at how cheap the options looked in implied volatility terms. I'm like, if you want to play this, play it into Microsoft, you know, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, um, and Meta, those companies make up 40% of NVIDIA sales. They're all going to report at the end of the month. I don't really want to play it. I don't want to be long it for their own earnings, which are going to happen at the end of February. Let's put up a one-year chart of this NVIDIA. Did that all make sense to you, playing it in that capacity? Yeah. I mean, uh, and also the, the, the relative performance as opposed to, so there's RSI, which is an oscillator, uh, yeah. and then there's relative performance or relative strength, which compares not the internal price, but the, the securities price to something else. What's key here is the semis have dipped, and they have, right? NVIDIA has not. But either way, it's a conventional bijuncture of what that means, according to convention is generally agreed upon. It is a convention that a stock at or near uh, well-defined tops at a common level has the prospects of breaking out, and that when you're breaking out, it, and if it's at an all-time high, 
no one is unhappy. The only person that could be unhappy are someone who's short. Everyone else, when you're bringing out to an all-time high, is in the money. Everyone has profit. So the only shareholders that are unhappy are people who are short. And the further it goes, the more unhappy they get to the point where they too become buyers because they got to close out their position. It's an excellent uh, situation or circumstance. And NVIDIA's performance today is a testament to what a conventional buy juncture is, a breakout candidate that is indeed breaking out. I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but if you go back to that prior chart where you're talking about RSI, one of the things that we've talked about pretty consistently over the years is you can't just look at one indicator as a means to buy a stock, sell a stock, get long, get short, those types of things. For example, RSI is a great example. Yes, we talk about it, but if that's your sole uh, indicator, again, to get long or short something, chances are it's not going to be pretty good. But I'm so happy you mentioned that, Dan, because what we saw happening is you know, NVIDIA, which got to an overbought condition at certain points along the way, vis-a-vis this sideways action over a course of time, allows the stock to work off an overbought condition. The same way if a stock was trading around a low for a period of time, it would sort of mitigate the oversold condition that you're seeing, and it would allow the stock to subsequently go lower. In this case, working off an overbought condition allows it to go higher. With that said, volume is going to be your guide now. Now, NVIDIA's already traded, I think, 40 million shares today. It's 115. It typically trades about 40 million shares. So we're on course to do about a 150% or so of normal volume. I think today's close is going to be really interesting to see what happens. Do we continue to build on it or do you get some of it back? But your point about RSI and being reasonable is something that I take away from this entire conversation. Yeah, yeah and that and, and that's a great point, Guy, because it was just one input of mine. And sometimes, you know, uh, and Carter does this all the time with us, you know, doesn't put the name of a chart on it. You know what I mean? So it's like kind of getting away with all your preconceived ideas about whatever you think about the fundamentals or the story or the sentiment towards or this or whatever. Sometimes it's just useful to kind of look at the chart. And that's what I was doing. And I looked at a bunch of inputs and then I kind of looked at what I thought some of the catalysts were. I want to be really clear, though. So I detailed this Friday at 5.30 on CNBC. You woke up this morning, and if it's something that you wanted to play, the stock was already up $5 on the open, you know, from $4.90 to $4.95. So there was no real way to really play this the way that I detailed it because I started writing it up at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon. So I'm not looking to, to take a victory lap by any means here because this is a story that I've had some trouble with over the last year and lost plenty of money in trying to take the other side. But Carter, as you look at this today's breakout and you look at the way the rest of the sector is um, acting and you look at the way, um, you know, to your point, the only people now who have ever lost money is right here and now are those who are short. What do you think of like, how does a trader look at this breakout and say to themselves, what is the measured move? How would, how would you kind of define your target now that it has a breakout? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially the width of the range. It's a hundred bucks. It would imply 600, but it's a very, it's a very nuanced thing and hard to cope with when something that you wanted to do, but didn't starts to move. We've all been there. So then, because you're anchored to, God, I was just about to do this last week at 480 or 490. This is a very hard thing. And the reason why they work more often than not is because there's a certain percentage of market participants who now can't act. They just, they're like, they're anchored to 490 to 480, to three weeks ago, and they were going to do it at 460. And they're like, damn it, I've missed it. I won't pay 415. And so it 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 leaves them 
with their nose pressed up against the glass looking in at the party and they just can't act. It is usually right to pay up for things. And so as hard as it is, it's right to buy it even here. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It does feel like this morning's action guy, it got going and it felt like a good old fashioned short squeeze because it mm -hmm. really just kind of took off. And when it got through that kind of $500 number, you had mentioned on many occasions back in the spring, that intraday high was 516 or so after it yeah. gapped up after its earnings. But in those events, like people were selling, they're like, this is as good as it gets. It had already had a huge run into the earnings. Um, I just want to make one last point about like the way we're going to be programming a lot of this stuff is that, you know, on market call, um, we're going to be doing this real time live, right? So there, we're not going to have the break of, you know, kind of detailing a trade idea, doing it when the market's closed after the close. It, it's a really hard way to do it. We've all had to deal with that for years. Um, and so we're going to be Mondays and, and throughout the week doing different option trades, and it's going to be real time while the market it's open. So be sure to tune in. And, and Carter, this brings me to unworthcharting.com. In my, in my inbox, I had not just a bunch of charts. I had an options trade that you were dealing with um, or, or, or detailing with JP Morgan. And I thought it was really great. And it goes back to what Guy was talking about, the sort of inputs that lead you. Obviously, we know what leads you. It's technicals. And, and we talked about for years how much you've been trading options in and around that. So it's interesting to marry the two. We're looking at the banks right now because Friday morning, I, what, 30, 40% of the XLF is going to mm -hmm. report earnings all in one fell swoop. You see them there. I just want to pull up the JP Morgan chart. This is our chart, not yours. And you're going to walk us through what you're doing here. I mean, that move from 135 to 172, we've talked about it here. I mean, that is as steep as it gets for a half a trillion dollar market cap company, right? You see how lonely that 150 day moving averages down there. So I just, just bring this up. It's like, you want to buy the at the money call or put in the weeklies. It's only costing you a percent and a half. You know what I mean? So you want to defend a long position into Friday. You want to kind of lever up. It's not costing you that much. Talk to us about what you're seeing and that led you to think of the trade idea that you detailed on wordcharting.com. Yeah. So the, the, the key here is, of course, it's nothing that's idiosyncratic or specific to JP Morgan. That low is the October 27th low that is the S&P low. And we know that home builders rallied 45% from their October low to present. Um, JP Morgan, not as much. But, um, you know, the home builders are small potatoes, if you will. This is, you know, the 15th, 10th largest, probably at this point, stock in the S&P, 500 billion. And to just have that um, steep, uncorrected, and that sort of one-sided uh, angle is just not even a dip of any kind. Uh, it just feels a little bit overdone, right? Uh, mature intermediate advance in terms of magnitude and duration, almost four months in the making, and leaving the stock, and we'll see that on a longer-term chart, right back at a former high. And so uh, my thinking is, you know, if you're long, you sell calls, right? Or yep. you trim a little bit, um, maybe put on a risk reversal. Now, uh, I myself, uh, I, I almost never buy uh, calls or puts. I like selling them, right? And that's dangerous stuff because you're naked. Um, but I'll tell you what the note was that was sent out. And this is what it was arguing for. Um, selling premium above and below the market. Selling the 180 calls. And here you can see it here. So selling the 180 calls. This is for Friday expiration, February 16th. So it's six weeks out. You're taking in $1.88, you can see there in green, and selling the 160 puts. So your credit is 286. And so the outcome, scenario one, two, and three, if JP Morgan stays between the two, so let's go back to the chart, 
if JP Morgan stays in that range, you keep all the premium. And I think, so for starters, selling naked calls, let's talk about that. That's dangerous. They could, a stock could get bought out. Well, here's the thing. Zero chances of that. So we remove that one, right? We only do that when we're doing a Berkshire or Microsoft. No one is going to buy JP Morgan. I can, you know, they say guaranteed. I'll guarantee it. Put it on the world tape. It's 100% guaranteed. So we're, we're out of that mess right now. Um, interestingly, the price target at 180 is what the street has. So Wall Street does not like this stock. Their 12-month price target of 30 analysts is $180. That's only 4% higher from here. And so I think you sell the 180 calls and you sell the 160 puts. And those lines there I've drawn is the stock has to stay between those two. Um, if it goes higher than that, you're effectively shorting at 182.86. That's a typo there on my chart. It's 182.86. And if it drops, you're getting long 9% lower at 157.14. So just as people put out good till cancel limit orders, and someone might do that, I want to put in a good to cancel limit order to buy JP Morgan 9% lower. That's what this would be effectively doing. Or I want to short JP Morgan if it goes 6 7% higher. That's what this would be doing. So I think your odds are very high that neither of those are triggered, right? And you keep it all. Or the two scenarios, otherwise, it rises above 180, in which case yeah. you're effectively short at 182 spot 86, six plus percent higher, or it drops below 160 and you're getting yeah. long JP Morgan at basically 9% lower. So, so Carter, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I know. So Guy and I make that point that you just made all the time about selling naked calls, right? So if you sell a naked call, you have literally potentially for an infinite loss, right? But in this case, the only person or the only thing that could buy JP Morgan at a price, uh, you know, that, that would be well above those levels you outlined would be God. And, and I don't know. Um, it's 500. It cannot God. be done. And, and, yeah. and, well, for obvious reasons, right? And the government wouldn't allow. Who's going to? Yeah. Buy? I mean, so, so but, but you wouldn't want to do this. You wouldn't want to do sell naked Not calls in a, in a ten billion dollars software stock or this or whatever. Nope. Okay. So, so I agree with that. And one other thing, guy, uh, and this is important because we talk about this all the time. So when we talk about probabilities and and selling premium makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Often, if I'm looking at the February 180 call that you suggest selling, the options market is saying there's only about. 20% probability that that will be in the money on February 16th at four o'clock. On the flip side, looking down at 160, okay, that, that put strike, it's saying there's only about an 18% probability that that will be in the money. But again, to your point about a good to cancel buy order that you might have down there or a sell order up above, that makes some sense, especially if you're in the camp that's range bound. Guy, talk to me a little bit that maybe they can pull up that five-year yeah. chart again because so you've been talking about that level. chart. Yeah, so pull up along, I think we put it on Instagram last week, one of the things that I was watching. And we talked about this potential for, and that's Carter's chart. We can pull up a real-time chart, go back a couple of years, and you'll see that the levels we're currently trading at are JP Morgan are effectively the same levels that we traded at in the middle of 2021. I'm not exactly sure when, but you can see, your eyes can see that. In terms of valuation, it got from being a relatively, um, I don't know, attractive stock on valuation six months or so ago to a stock that once again, in terms of price to book, price to tangible book, has gotten towards the upper end of its spectrum in terms of its level. It's gotten rich is my point. I'll say this as well. If you can go to Carter's outcome quickly in terms of um, what he's looking at by selling the call and selling the put. And again, I'm not an expert in these things, but what I'll tell you is if Friday comes and goes and the stock goes nowhere, the call that Carter sold for, I think it was a buck 88. I didn't see it exactly. You know, there's a very good chance that over the course of the next couple of trading days, in a benign scenario, 
know, those calls can get cut in half. So he could potentially buy back that short call yep. position without question. So I think you would say, Carter and Dan as well, that these are living, breathing things. You don't have to wait till the end. Over mm-hmm. periods of time, you can trade around these as well. Yeah. Hey, right. one, and, and, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go, I, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go. No, no. 100%. Sorry about that. You're not, you don't actually have to wait, right? Until both are trading at pennies, that sort of thing, because the last thing you want to do is leave some, you know, like short call out there that's worth 10 cents or something that you sold for 86. So, so again, guy is 100% right. We will update this. This will be fascinating next Monday, right? So, um, uh, one trading day after the results, and we can use this as a great test case. Um, one last point Doug Cass just, just pinged me. And he just said it'd be really helpful um, for me to explain how someone can figure out those probabilities. So all these options, each strike has um, some Greeks attached to it. A delta, and I just said about the probability of this, either one of these strikes being in the money, the delta, and you can find this on any of your trading systems for any strike, is basically how much, okay, that option will change in price per dollar move in the underlying stock, okay? And that delta is essentially, okay, the probability of the in the moneyness on expiration. So that's how you guys can do that. Google that stuff, but that's a great point, Doug. Um, We appreciate it. Hey, while we're on the financials, um, Guy, let's talk a little bit about American Express and uh, uh, Capital One. And we talked about these names briefly when we started out the show. So Baird downgrades both of these stocks. Um, They downgrade uh, Amex from underperform to a neutral and they download uh, downgrade uh, Capital One, I think from a neutral to a sell. You don't see that too often um, on Wall Street. The charts look uh, essentially the same. The Capital One looks a little different on a five-year basis. I think we have that um, a little bit. And this consolidation um, above those recent highs is kind of interesting. It broke that big downtrend. But let's start with American Express guy because this is one that you know looked like it was about to you know it went from 52 week lows to 52 mm-hmm. week highs and, and not so uh not so long of a period there well i mean it's not coincidental that it also coincided with the move in rates like if you were to look at this move from july until november that upper left lower right in terms of the stock it coincided with interest rates going from i don't know 385 ish up to five percent in the 10 year and then the reversal not coincidentally, is on the move lower in rates. I'll say this about this downgrade. I don't know if they're going to be right, Baird, but what I'll tell you is if you go longer term, you'll see that American Express is trading at levels we probably saw in terms of its all-time high if you go back a few years, number one. Number two, it's not a valuation story, but what I'll tell you is it's a credit story at a certain point, and I'm still concerned that credit's going to be an issue in 2024. And the difference between American Express and MasterCard and Visa, for example, is that American Express takes credit risk. And that's a stock that that's a chart that I was talking about before. So if you believe that credit's going to be a concern in 2024, almost by definition, you have to be somewhat bearish of American Express here. And to a larger extent, Capital One, because it's a completely different customer. And we have seen significant moves lower in that stock on the back of exactly that. Yeah, Carter, which one of these two stand out or do you just give us your impressions of, uh, you know, not exactly on the down uh, downgrade, but, you know, the 52-week lows, the 52-week highs in two months? Right, and they're all, it's again, that's the main thing about the JP Morgan. It's not idiosyncratic. It's the whole thing. It's all rates related. Um, but if you think about what makes a uh, an analyst downgrade a stock, it's because that analyst also, whether they're looking at charts, 
probably not, or their own model. It, it, you know, it, it's such a quick and aggressive re-rating of a security tied to a macro data point that um, how much, if not all, of what's good that lies ahead on an intermediate base has been priced in. So the analyst doesn't do that casually, didn't do it because someone, the DOR, Director of Research Pressure, and the analyst said, you know what, this is probably a good time to pull in one's horns a bit. And so the key is that speaks to then all of this, if it's American Express and it's also Capital One, it's JP Morgan, which is the big one, um, you know, it makes you wonder whether right here and now, if one was a big, institutional player having to be overweight or underweight, a sector as important as financials, mm -hmm. does one sort of reduce uh, exposure? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. It's interesting. And Guy, I think you said this just a little bit ago, when you think about how quickly rates went from 4% to 5% and just the, you know, we saw a lot of those stocks making 52 week lows when that was happening. And then that just the ricochet that we saw when we saw rates go from 5% to 4%. And in 2024, it appears to be that the rate outlook is just going to be as murky as it was in 2023, right? If you just think about that, you think about what the dot plots are saying and you think about where the market is. All right, one last thing before we get out of here, um, Carter, I'd love to get your take on this. And Guy, I want to really get your fundamental take on this, but it's Boeing. So we wake up this morning and an absolutely horrific thing happened, obviously. And thank goodness no one was hurt in this Alaskan airline thing but that's like worst case scenario stuff like when you have parts of the side of a plane flying off of it you know what i mean you think that from all the movies that we've seen that people are getting sucked out or whatever <laughs> and thank god like nobody did okay but, but apparently this, a boy's shirt got sucked off his back mm -hmm. which is really crazy because you know you would think yeah no it's a, so here's the one year so that's that thing went from 52 week lows rallied 50 percent. now it's obviously come off significantly last week before this thing even happened they were recalling a bunch of 737 maxes because you ready for this faulty nuts and bolts in the rudder in the like in the rudder that's kind of an important kind of device on a plane right you know what i mean they've had massive you know quality assurance issues with this thing they had two planes i think what 350 or 400 people died in those two crashes you know yeah. five years ago they can pull up this five-year chart what is <laughs> Talk to me about the technicals in this thing here, man. Like, I, I don't know how you step in and buy this. Yeah. So the key is to is to suspend the news, right? So again, if it was just any company, and you saw a drop in gap like that, let's just go back to the daily chart, the shorter term, and one uh, one would ask, well, would this company have earnings? Well, we're not going to tell you. Um, is there a software? I'm not going to tell you. Is it large cap? Nope. Small cap. Do they have a lot of debt? Nope. Well, there must have been some news. You think? Yeah, there was. Okay. So now was the news good or bad? Uh, can't be good. Meaning, so it's like if this were a, a player in a sports team, I mean, he just struck out again or threw the 19th walk or fumbled for the fourth time. Meaning you would never embrace uh, this is something that has just stumbled like that. And so you don't typically buy into a stock that's dropped and gapped as a matter of technique. Now, sometimes it works out really well and people say, see, I was bold when others were fearful and it rallied back and Boeing's going to be okay. And But if you just look at the chart and suspend the news, it's usually wrong to step in after something has had a major re-rating down like that. Let's take a look at a longer term chart. If you can go back to March, April, March of 2021, and you'll see where we topped out in terms of Boeing around 265, 270. Look at where we just topped out at over the last week or so. Same level. So you have 
a prior resistance level, we traded to it. If you go to this last chart that we just had prior to this one, you'll see there's a, still a little bit of a gap in the chart on the downside, which probably needs to be filled somewhere between, I want to say, 198 and 205 or something like that. So mm -hmm. potentially that could be your bogey. I will tell you that 220-ish is sort of a 50% retracement of that recent low that we saw in October and this recent high that we saw a couple of weeks ago. So I look at this, Dan, and say, first of all, I agree with Carter. There's no compelling reason to step in here. 220 might be a level of support, but that gap on the downside, to me, sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing, though. I mean, this company has been losing uh, money for years now because of all the issues with the 737 MAX, and they've obviously placed a lot of their future you know, hopes on this. And this year is supposed to be the first year, um, I think, in five that it swung back to um, uh, you know, a, a positive gain. They had $16 in 2018 in earnings. Um, and you know expected to do four dollars in earnings this year if this plane gets grounded i mean this is a huge problem for this company and i gotta just tell you like this is something going back to 2019 and those crashes when i'm booking flights i am doing my best not to be on a 737 max i'm just telling you there's just like enough problems with this thing man and it's gone from just something that was meant it's supposed to be a software issue to now just all this horrific like like qa stuff as far as the build I mean, just for, and then there's, I mean, I'm just looking at one thing here. There are people who said, listen, independent of all that, we know that Boeing will be around, which is true. It's largely a government entity as in every major defense contract of which they're a big part. And that one is right to, in a moment like this, think 10 years out and say, I've got to buy some Boeing. And probably that has a view. But for those who don't think an epic long-term thing, I would point this out. I'm just looking on my little funny mental screen. Think about this. 10 years ago, their revenues were 90 billion. Right now they're 75. And 10 years ago, they had total debt of 9 billion and now they have 60. Meaning this business cannot generate the same level of profits as it did if your revenues are down 20% and your debt is up almost tenfold. It just, the P&L will never be what it was. Can't be. Yeah, well, I guess that was the story of General Electric too, right? Over yep. the, the course of our lifetimes too. So some of these things, um, you know, they, they they come and go. And GE was one of the largest market cap companies in the world, what, 25 years ago or so. Um, all right, guys, we covered a lot of ground here. Um, guy, just coming in off the bench, literally the bench. You'd make a great judge, Guy. Don't you think you'd make a great judge up there just kind of looking well, you down know, on my people? old man was a village justice for 30 years. My mother was an attorney. So I'd like yeah. to think that I have the temperament, not necessarily yeah. DNA. intellect. But with that said, yeah, I think it'd be all right. Well, you know, you know that night court is back on the air after 40 years. Or yeah, so that, John that. yeah, John Larroquette. Pretty, yeah, he was funny. He was funny back in the day. So just to, I mean, not to get too into the weeds here, but just to show you how the trial that it was a civil trial, I won't get into the details, but the event happened early in 2021 is when the actual incident occurred. Today is obviously January of 2024. And that's when they're hearing this case. I mean, three freaking now I understand COVID and all that stuff, but yeah. man, oh man, there's a real problem. If you think about it. it's not just Morristown, New Jersey that has these issues. Anyway, back to you. All right. Fair enough. All right. Listen, guys, we covered a lot of ground. Carter Braxtonworth, we really appreciate you being here. You'll be back with us on Thursday. We'll yeah, do a little chart check um, heading into all of those bank earnings um, on Friday morning. Uh, take us out of here, guy. Was a lot of fun. Big game tonight. The Huskies of Washington against, obviously, the Wolverines of Michigan. My sense is there will be more Michigan fans 
I'm hard-pressed to figure out how Washington's going to win, given that stout defense of Michigan. Although I will tell you, I love the Penix kid. I think his story is great, and I do think he's going to be a great pro. Not so much a J.J. McCarthy guy in the pros, but I love him, obviously, in college. That said, the most important event tonight, obviously, is what we alluded to earlier. <laughs> the Rangers play Vancouver. I want to thank Carter Braxton Worth, FactSet, the audience, Everybody, we will be back tomorrow. I believe it's just the two of us, Dan. But until then, see you later. See you later. Thanks. See you later.